You understand? Hey guys, welcome back to Block Channel. We're back for episode 74. And we're back for the start of a new season. Surprise. Uh, didn't really build you up on any sort of segue, give you any notice on the end of last season. But, and I'll honestly, I actually, you know, had at least one more, or two more episodes in me. Um, but then this DeFi yield farming stuff started getting in heavy. And then I started losing all the sleep, track of time and days. And now here we are. Um, so that being said, uh, you know, we're back for another awesome season as we're going in deep uh, with decentralized finance popping off. We've got the decentralized web emerging as a really interesting narrative as Filecoin, Handshake, Sia, like, you know, and all these other decentralized solutions as a part of the future Internet's web stack um, sort of come to fruition. So it's a really exciting time. So that being said, you know, I'm back for another great season with your favorite co-hosts, uh, Dr. Corey Petty and Dimitri Ferguson. Uh, Dimitri's out chilling, probably passed out on the couch right now. That's cool. It's hard out here. So I'm here with Dr. Petty, who got some free time from being away from his baby, or he probably has his baby literally swaddled next to him. Uh, Corey, uh, can you introduce yourself to the audience for number 74? What's up, everybody? Dr. Corey Petty. Got, uh, got some reprieve for the baby for an hour or so while the wife's here. And uh, ready to do some block channel. Started your season off right with uh, talking about sweet, sweet DeFi and all the problems it may have. Yeah, man. How can can you even DeFi with a baby? I mean, you're already naturally up till three, four in the morning. Yeah, so but you can't like do anything with your hands. So unless you're. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so you know we're we're gonna have an interesting talk today. Just as there's just been this exuberance around decentralized finance yield farming, all this other sort of industry specific dark and that sort of like popped up in, in your Twitter newsfeed. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk about kind of like the legal considerations, maybe uh, through all this, you know, kind of money making that we usually follow as a bull run. Uh, sometimes I think it's important that we kind of remember the fundamentals of kind of why we're here and also the legal boundaries as to how we can operate. Um, and so, you know, what better than uh, a lawyer? Um, so we got on Alexander Lindgren um, from Eloy Law, uh, who's also the uh, counsel, full disclaimer, at Amentum Capital, um, my fund. And so he has been a world of advice um, for me over the past few years getting into crypto funds. And really, I kind of feel, I feel like he sort of like wrote the book. Uh, on how this has kind of been done. And he's been, uh, you know, an ally for a lot of my different friends with different funds, uh, different crypto companies. Uh, and so he's just got a wide breadth of expertise. So I've got him on today. Um, so Alex, uh, could you introduce yourself to the audience here uh, at Block Channel? And then we'll start digging in and getting know more about you before we talk about all this good stuff. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, like you said, I'm Alex Lindgren. I'm a partner at Lindgren, Lindgren, Omen U. It's a boutique law firm with offices in New York, New Jersey, and California. Uh, I do a lot in the crypto space, both on the investment side and on the operating company developer side. And I've been working with companies in space since like beginning of 2017, something like that. So, you know, going on three years now. And would you would you consider yourself at this point a crypto lawyer or a lawyer who specializes sometimes in crypto? I'm not sure what the distinction is, but given that you know well over half of my clientele are more are crypto involved in one way, shape, or form, I, I probably qualify as a crypto attorney. I certainly spend a lot of time worrying about it. So there's so, a, there's, so a, there's a different form of that question. Are you happy you've spent so much time working in crypto, or do you feel like you should have made a different choice? A while ago, <laughs> I feel like I won the lottery. Are you kidding me? I mean, in in in, 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 in I don't necessarily mean in a pecuniary sense. Um, I mean, crypto has been 
one of the reasons I, I, I engage with it so much is it's an incredibly fascinating area, right? You know, so regulatory or corporate attorney, you don't deal with really novel problems or, or issues all that often, unless you're in crypto, in which case every little transaction you deal with sort of spawns cascading levels of, 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 of analysis and concern, which I think I'm sure a lot of people find exhausting. I really enjoy. So it's, it's been a great part of my practice and, uh, and it has grown partially because I've gone after it and I really enjoy it. So beyond that, let's establish your nerd credibility. What nerdy thing were you involved in before you got interested in crypto? Because everyone always has something, some deep seated oh. corner of the internet where you learned about digital monies. Where did oh, yours come well, from? So, I, I mean, I was a gamer for years, right? And, and I played uh, virtually every online game but one in particular i played for a while was and and still keep in touch with is a game called eve online where there's this uh internal currency right that that can be exchanged for in-game in-game currency you can buy it it's used for redeemed for game time uh which almost as soon as it was created immediately spawned sort of entire black markets and and money laundering operations or at least supposedly in in this thing so the the concept of digital money and and ecosystems in which those di that digital money can either live or, or potentially escape from has been something that's fascinated me uh, even in my off time for for a long time now so you would say that 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 experience with eve online and digital money and like those online economies helped you like more quickly like understand crypto you would say than most other lawyers because you're on the younger side right yeah i think it i mean it certainly made it less less unfamiliar right mm -hmm. so there's um I, I mean it's funny that, that you mentioned that right because the there was something about the way in which markets if you sort of put it in air quotes in that that universe played out right and how they interacted with the real world um that was unique to deeply unregulated markets let's say right or ones regulators are not particularly present um and and so you know leads to a certain dynamism uh, it also leads to uh, a lot of sort of shady behavior and, and a certain level of paranoia as a consequence in, in who you're dealing with, sort of at arm's length through an avatar or a digital handle or something. Uh, so it definitely made it less, it's definitely made it less uh, unfamiliar. And um, I, I have to admit, you know, digital, digital economies and money sort of being a hobby since I was 16 years old. Uh, I have to admit that it, it's pretty fun to, to do it for a part of my career now. I actually use that Eve example quite a bit when I'm explaining the concept of uh, kind of digital currencies and how. Oh, really? Uh, what, what happens when they're able to flee the context in which they're made? So whenever you're allowed to tie them into a real world market, and I think Eve was one of the largest examples of like what people are willing to do, and like the incredible complex economies that spawn when real world oh, value gets tied into it whole whole ecosystems and swarms of social organization kind of uh, you know thousands of people in them right were spawned around basically the need to launder money through that game um and and uh you know i feel for the poor company in i think it's Reykjavik or wherever they're based they're i'm sure in a constant struggle against this uh, which I maybe is a little bit instructive to to crypto developers, right? Uh, that you build something and it's got all sorts of of really neat uses, and and people will then put it to other uses that you didn't anticipate. People will find um, a way to gamble. Right. <laughs> people will inevitably find a way to turn your very neat game into gamble. 
very quickly. <laughs> so, so that leads us uh, directly into a nice segue into talking about like DeFi. So, you know, we've we've had this interesting platform, you know, evolve around Bitcoin and now Ethereum, and with the composability of smart contracts, um, we've had a lot of really interesting financial instruments that have come online over the past, I would say, eighteen months that have now sort of kind of started connecting like Lego pieces, so to speak, these money Legos. And, you know, with that, we've seen an exciting, you know, expansion into ways of establishing yield, new types of uh, options related instruments, ways to do puts calls uh, on contracts, insurance coverage, all this crazy stuff that's like kind of working to mimic the, I guess, the skill tree that is traditional finance. And we're sort of like creating a mirrored version of that in our own decentralized manner, slowly, of course. Uh, and so that being said, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity for wealth, uh, but there's also a lot of opportunity for loss and risk. Uh, and so I just wanted to just maybe talk about at a high level to just sort of understand from a lawyer, when when you start hearing people talking about creating these decentralized money ecosystems, one, how much does it scare the shit out of you? And two, like how much of it like keeps you up at night? Like, do you think that for the most part, the uh, the industry has regulated itself organically to a point where it's for the most part all right, and it's just contract risk? Or, or what? What's your initial take when when someone approaches you about DeFi? So, I, my initial take when someone approaches me about DeFi is you because they're they're almost always interesting projects. On the does it give me the heebie-jeebies? The answer is basically yes, although I'm not sure I'm in full panic mode yet. And and here's the reason. I you know, I like I said, I came into the space beginning twenty seventeen and I never found any of the legal actions that came out of the regulators particularly mystifying. Um in fact I, I think that by and large the regulatory framework for tokens, token investors and so forth been fairly consistent and and clear if you thought about it hard from you know early 2017 at the very right and you have this sort of uh you know we've talked about it a lot the this sort of framework wherein you've got tokens they live a spectrum between commodities and securities you know decentralization is relevant to the question of of which one it is and and then you've got fincen floating out there to sort of cover cover the gaps in terms of money laundering coverage um that all seemed fairly clear, right? I, I, I did not think that there was anything really unexpected or or really novel that came out of the, the regulator that stuff. And for their part, I think the crypto factual patterns that were presented were themselves fairly straightforward, all, th- all told. Um, that is not true here, right? I, I, you know, in other words, I have no idea <laughs> how some of these things are regulated, if at all. I think I have some theories and and I think that there is probably going to be more guidance from regulators down the road on these things. But it's not 100% clear to me that the regulators know what to do with these either. Right. Right? Because the, the traditional theories of regulation really are all about nodal points in ecosystems, right? You control the, the nodal points. So mm-hmm. banks, exchanges, uh, broker dealers, right? Anywhere where there's a, a node of either information or, or, or fiscal control in mm-hmm. the financial ecosystem, that's where regulators focus because they get the most bang for their buck. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives them someone to sort of hang the, the responsible hat on. Here, 
it's a lot harder, right? I mean, you know, ICOs, for example, were, were in many ways sort of traditional securities offerings in, in some cases. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, creates a commodity on a decentralized platform. That was relatively new, but pretty straightforward. These things you have are, are very different, right? So so let's take a, a hypothetical uh, pool, right, that, that you can, you know, buys and sells, uh, market making pool, automated market making pool, buys and sells, you know, two tokens, right? And uh, people put it in, they earn some fees, they take some risks, people can trade on it. Okay, that's that's all fine. And and let's say some developer created it, put it out there. And let's say for this hypothetical is not taking sort of, there's nothing about the contract that gives him residual control, right? He's not taking backend fees or, or piece, maybe, you know, was the first person to fund the smart contract. Well, in that case, the only person you can point to right who is a, a a controlling person conceivably is the original developer but if they're not you know if they're in the same position as everyone else using the, the protocol at that point um and they don't even have the the ability to go in and say freeze funds or kyc people right they probably don't have that capacity it becomes very hard to see who the regulated party is there right mm -hmm. and do you think that we're reaching a point in crypto's maturity where the tools have reached a certain level of sophistication where we move beyond can the SEC regulate this to is it even possible and do we and, and does do these regulators start to just lose just power just by the innate nature that all the money is going to these protocols, the yields going to these protocols, and they have literally no control over it in any way, shape, or form? I mean, I so a couple of things. One, I think, although this is not a very statement in crypto, mm -hmm. it's dangerous to underestimate state power in a broad mm -hmm. sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, of course. Mm -hmm. U.S., China, the EU have really deep and fundamental interests in, in maintaining some level of control information around the flow of money. Um, the other thing, I, the other thing I think is keep worth keeping in mind is that crypto is still very early stage in my opinion right in terms of maturity and this is something that i think is worth talking about in deep with regards to DeFi in particular you know DeFi is creating all these opportunities to earn lots and lots of money right and i think that's that's driving current interest in the same way that token price escalation did into 2017. what is to me more interesting about the DeFi sort of boom right the cambrian explosion i think someone described it as is to me, it's really um, putting the consumer facing sort of mechanical useful components onto the crypto ecosystems so that you do not fundamentally need to be like a technical expert to get into it, right? I, I, up until now, if you really wanted to get into crypto, you either needed to learn quite a bit or at bare minimum, you were gonna use some intermediated party to deal with it, right? You were gonna go to you know, a, even a relatively sophisticated person might just go to Coinbase and use a traditional intermediate party to, to enter the ecosystem. I think what, I've, what I'm seeing from some of the DeFi stuff in general, and what I think is most interesting about it, is it one sort of makes those entry points for non-traditional crypto users a lot easier to manage and deal with, um, both in terms of, you know, think about, you know, even things like dashboards, right, from from Instadap or something are are, vastly more user-friendly and sort of mechanically functional than, than most available up until quite recently. Um, and so that's, I think that's a really important step forward maturity of the, the system. 
I think that the idea that it has sort of stepped outside of regulatability is probably not correct, except perhaps as to some very narrow facts. Um, and and the reason for this is you think about the the SEC's uh, actions in Ether Delta case, right? Well, so Ether Delta, if you recall, was this de decentralized securities exchange. Basically, was the you know it was a decentralized exchange, and and the SEC claimed it was basically an unlicensed securities exchange. Um, and the ultimately the the to me the hook on which that case lay arrested was the fact that the guy retained a certain level of control he was receiving back-end fees on the system right for every for every transaction and he had the, the ability to modulate the fees right so he could change the fees on the bid or the ask side um the that was enough control clearly the sec to feel like it had jurisdiction over this guy that he was really the operator of this thing in my experience, most projects that come to me, right, are not truly decentralized in, any, in, in however you want to conceptualize that, right? They're, they're retaining some sort of outsized economic benefit from it, typically, or, or some residual level of control, often, if for no other reason than to, to avoid sort of technical problems, right? If there's, they need to roll something back during, during a launch or something like that. Um, I think the trick is that, and I don't necessarily agree with this, by the way, but I think that what you're going to see is if regulators find that they are unable to sort of get a, a grip on this, and it does explode out of control, right? It becomes a vector for money laundering or, or people start losing a lot of money, particularly consumers. Um, it will draw their attention. And at that point, they, you know, they have only so many tools in their toolbox. One of those tools is to go after the developers of the of these of these protocols and try to hold them individually liable. Um, that's a tall order, right? Between case of some cases trying to figure out who did it, but it's not impossible, and it's certainly not that much more complex, in my opinion, than a lot of traditional, you know, anti-money laundering investigation, something like that. So you're you're left with a scenario where my I guess my great fear is that the regulators will not find a way to um, regulate right these these systems where where it's appropriate and that the systems are, are going to be built in such a way that makes it basically not possible to do so in which case i i think you're you you risk a scenario where authorities feel like their only option is to go after individual developers and in persona, which would, mm. you know, is, is basically not good, right? I don't think anyone think that, thinks that's good. And and for what it's worth, and there was at least one court case where um, prosecutor went after a developer. I think this was associated with the flash crash. They tried to mm. criminally go after the developer of the software for, I guess, the guy who did this manipulation or something. The exact, exact facts elude me at the second. But the upshot was the case was dismissed because mm -hmm. the the relationship was too attenuated. That's good, right? But on the other hand, it it shows that they are willing to try to make that connection, right? To to a mm -hmm. software developer for say market manipulation fraud or or an unlicensed exchange. Um, and when you view those cases, you know, along with like Ether, Delta, and others, sort of in in tandem, I think you're left with a pretty stark choice for developers. I think developers who 
are willing to basically put something out there and then give up control over it um, are probably in a safer place, at least from a legal point of view. Those that are not, uh, or you know, who sort of want to retain control or or, or um, retain sort of some uh, economic benefit or advantage from it, outsides compared to, to other participants, that's going to be trickier. And it's not clear to me what the answer is other than self-regulation to avoid the the prosecution problem, right? I mean, in, in what self-regulation looks like, by the way, probably varies a lot depending on the particular product that you're talking about, because DeFi covers a range of proverbial sins. Um, would you but, consider would you consider what we've been doing in the space or what a lot of these yield farming protocols and stuff like YFI have done uh, is like the community governance around the different proposals on how the protocol is improved? Would you say that that is a form of self-regulation by the individuals that use these protocols and taking participation in that governance process? It can be, certainly. Um, I think that in general, and this is probably true outside of DeFi, DeFi specifically as well. Um, governance, right? The question of control is is highly relevant to a lot of regulatory questions, right? Not not just the the, the Howey test. Mm -hmm. And um, to the extent that you have truly abandoned that control, right? As that's the originator, the developer, and we can and then you and there's real governance authority occurring somewhere else. Um, that I think often that can be very helpful for projects. The problems I see with that frequently is that the the supposed governance structure is basically a facade, and and that's not very helpful, right? And where where you run into that is not just where um, I guess it's literally intended to be a facade, but also in scenarios where you, you take a really simple example, if if you have a voting you know voting protocol in in, in sort of proportion to the number of tokens held with the protocol. But you know, as a practical matter, that you're the only person who ever votes. Then, you know, how much control have you given up in that in that governance policy? Okay. Probably not a whole lot. But that's going to depend a lot on the project, sort of how they handle that governance process, and on the actual needs of the project itself, right? I mean, in other words, um, you know, governance over the protocol rules probably doesn't probably only helps you under with certain legal questions yeah i got i've got I, I, that it's only exacerbated by jurisdiction i feel in something like this because it's not like you said most of the regulatory framework or or guidelines tend to go after the the nodes of any given like infrastructure that supports this stuff but because it's so intrinsically global like jurisdictionless in a lot of ways you know, at least in many ways, how do, how does regulation stand? Like, where, where do they go? Because it's you can't go to the smart contract. You, if they yeah. can't find the people, they would look for I, I think organizations. If they and if those are still even further distributed, like I feel like it's 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 only going to get worse from here, and it's already really muddy. It is. It's a tricky problem. I, you know, it's a familiar problem. I will say in traditional, say anti money laundering investigations. Um, got just you know entities and individuals and, and funds and, and records scattered across dozens of jurisdictions and it's very messy. So, for what it's worth, authorities are not totally mm -hmm. unfamiliar with the need to 
do that sort of an investigation. And that's part of why these things take years, right? And that's a, a little bit of an a, a, asynchronicity that the, the market hasn't adapted to. The regulators frequently are paying attention. It just takes them longer to do things than the market or developers do. Um, in terms of, you know, jurisdictional authority, I one thing I, I tend to point out with a lot of my clients in crypto is that although this is not universally true, often the question of jurisdiction has more to do with who your users or customers are and where they are located than it does with you and where you are located. That is not always true, but with both, most big countries, right? Anywhere, anywhere big enough that's strong enough to basically exert its will beyond its own borders, tends to do so in a way that, that protects its own consumers, regardless of where you are, right? They don't really care. Um, what limits them is, is by you're not, you know, jurisdictionally what limits, what limits authorities is not often sort of the formality of the fact that you're elsewhere, although that can help. Um, but the, you know, their inability to sort of physically grab you or the, the fact that you didn't deal with very many customers in their, in their jurisdiction, right? So if you're worried, you know, I mean, this is something, if you're worried about American authorities, you can always, you know, block out American users, right, from, from the thing. But I don't think that solves problems, right? I think you're going to end up with these problems with other jurisdictions ultimately regardless. Um, and, and in fact... Uh, you know, so the, I think this was the last few weeks, the Financial Action Task Force put out uh, an announcement basically saying that the, the funds travel rule, which is one of these rules for, for money services businesses and banks where you have to send information along with transaction about, uh, about a particular fund, funding transaction, also applies to the virtual currency businesses, right, to, to what they call, I think it was uh, virtual asset service providers. Now, that rule and the, the concept in general that virtual asset service providers, what we would call MSPs, are subject to, to the regulations of uh, the same regulations as other financial services firms. We've known that since about 2015, at least in the US, right, when FinCEN weighed in. Um, it's not that other jurisdictions didn't have these rules and were never going to apply to them. It just took them longer to get around to it because US regulatory authorities tend to be yeah. well resourced. Right. So, so, you know, I, 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 running from the problem and this, this was true in 2017 is going to tune out running from the problem is not going to be very effective. Right. I, I don't think you're going, I hope you're not going to see around another round of companies sort of running off to, to random jurisdictions and setting up sort of shell after shell in an effort to avoid regulation. I think that, that rather, you know, some of this stuff just needs to be looked at thoughtfully and, and ask the question is, you know, how much of a systemic risk is this? Am I taking benefit? And for developers frequently, I think the basic question is, is this, how much control and benefit do you want to derive from this, right? And and the more you want to derive from, from a product you're putting out there, which usually there's some you want to get, but the more you want to get, get out of it and more control you want to exert over it, the more likely you are to get tagged as the regulated person or entity and and so you got to think about those things going into the project right before you like launch since, it, you I think it's like, like a good example of somebody launching and rolling out a DeFi project that has measured this stuff appropriately or or at least tried to oh depends on what you define like, as yeah, that's DeFi, a, that's a, right 
For, uh, uh, a good example would be like uh, like Compound and what they did with their governance token and their protocol launch. Like, are you familiar with those guys? Yeah, yeah. So Compound at least thought about it, right? I, I can't pass judgment on it, but they they certainly thought about it. I you know uh, on a simpler version, right? If you think uh, full disclosure, you know I, I worked with them for a little bit. The company called uh, or a project called Melonport, right? Which was launched uh, for it was decide decentralized sort of asset management protocol. Um, which you know ultimately the, the company was dissolved and the founders went their separate ways and there's a there's a governance body which is off doing its thing um you know i've seen it done before right i don't think that i've seen maybe compound i'd have to i i don't really uh, i don't really want to sort of give an opinion on compound right here mm -hmm. but broadly speaking i think we're we're still in such early days for the deep stuff that there probably hasn't been enough time for for projects to think about the legal issues right i mean in other words people tend to only start thinking about the legal issues after the first few successful projects come out and everyone looks You've at them got a bunch of money oh wait uh <laughs> what is this compound thing yeah well, maybe a, maybe a better form question uh that's along the same vein or what are hallmarks of uh trying to do a good job like what 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 are what's good like general level of advice of like if you're thinking about doing something like this you have to pay attention to this and not after you're successful because you're going to have a harder problem then. I mean, I, you, so I think my advice on this probably is this, broadly the same I give to crypto companies in general, which is that it, one, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Get legal counsel and do it early, early in the sta early stage of the project. Well, one of the things that happens is people sort of show up with the project completely done. Hey, you know, it's about to launch. And then they talk to an attorney and they're like, we are worried about X, Y, and Z. And 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 at that point, there's not that much that I can say or mm -hmm. do to fix things, right? The, the product is done, it needs to launch, you know, there's time pressure. So you're generally better off speaking to counsel early. Um, and, and ideally find one that you're comfortable enough with that you can involve them a little bit in the design process or the development process. Um, and then, you know, that, should give you know that person should give you an appropriate understanding of the risks and what the legal potential legal ramifications are involved then you got to measure it for yourself right you know sometimes it'll be criminal and you probably just don't want to do that um, but I, I recognize that not all not all entrepreneurs have the same view of risk as attorneys so you know you're doing new things there's going to be risks that you're probably going to take i think i hate to say it but stopping yourself entirely because your lawyers are paranoid is not necessarily the right thing to do but you want to find someone who can help you measure and, and sort of assess those risks on a relative basis. The other, and, and so the, the best thing you can do is, is get advice early and from someone who's worked with, with these sorts of projects before. So, uh, so, so, you know, I guess the, the rule of thumb is you want to avoid regulatory debt just as you would technical debt, like, you know, just with any other technical company. So that said, if very I am well a, put. Very if, well put. If, if I am a, if I'm a developer in the middle of Arkansas and I am just bomb at Solidity and I've been following this DeFi stuff and I'm like, I've made, let's say, say I made like 50 G's and I think, I think I'm a whiz and I'm like, you know what? I want to build this DeFi thing. I don't know the right way to approach this from a regulatory standpoint. I know I can build it. I've got this proof of concept. How do I go about the process of filtering who is the right lawyer for me? Do I pay someone? Who do I go to consult to first? Like what I know, I mean, I lucked out by getting introduced to you from a referral and not everyone has that network, right? They're not all in the Bay Area. So like, how does someone even go about doing it the right way if they have no network? Uh, you know, 
I'll, I will say that that's a tough question and not just front, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the, the lack of access to a network, I think, is a, a stimmy for, for a lot of entrepreneurs. That said, um, you know, good attorneys should recognize their limits and, and refer people out, right? Or, or try to help you find um, the right counsel. So that, you know, if you've got someone you know that you've worked with before, that's a really good starting point um, because they'll, they'll know their limits, uh, or at least they should if they're good at their job. The, the other thing to do is, is read the writing or read the sort of publications from the attorneys that you're looking at. Um, make sure that they've actually spent time in the sector and are familiar with it. There are, there are a decent number of attorneys in, in this space who are very, very good um, and are, are very familiar with the, the issue and, and the fundamental mechanics involved. Uh, most of them have been around for a little bit and you can usually tell, go look for them and, and see what they've done or at least sort of what they've written and, and whether it's helpful. The other thing is, and to take your specific hypothetical scenario, right? You know, it depends on what you're building. And this is, a, I think, a really important thing with, with DeFi. DeFi covers, as I said, a, very, a wide range of sins. Um, and to the extent that you are at the sort of moment that you're starting, just creating a what you think will be a cool product, right? Um, allow someone to do something you know, a fish more efficient way or in a clever way on the blockchain, go for it. Just go, just go down that route, try to get some funding. Right. Um, I think that the, here are the, the, the sort of key tipping points that if you haven't gotten to an attorney before then you're, you need to, before you start doing this, taking fees, right? So one of the most common, common things that I see is uh, DeFi products that generate transaction fees. And in some cases, they generate transaction fees for the creator or the developer, right? Um, or the creator or developer sort of set it up so that they're going to gain most of those fees in one way, shape, or form. If you're going to be taking fees from financial transactions in any context, right? Money moves, you take a fee, you are probably regulated in some way, shape, or, or at least you need to go talk to an attorney. Um, that it's not always a hard stop, right? It's there. There are ways to deal with it and licenses to get in various cases but it's it's one of those sort of big red flags right if you're moving money around or your the thing you built moves money around and executes transactions and, you, and takes fees off of it that's one of the i think biggest sort of regulatory uh the second thing big red flag to be aware of is if you are building something that will allow people to invest into it and then lose money right so a lot of these pools are, are something to think about because in the same way that sort of taking fees off of moving other people's money around is a a classic sort of flag for broker dealer activity for all sorts of things and and, and demonstrates the sort of control that we we often not in a decentralized program um you know in, in a similar way if you have a scenario where people are going to put money into your system and they could lose all of that money uh you may have an investor complaint coming along right like someone will potentially eventually complain to the cftc or the sec or their whomever their local plaintiff's class action attorney whomever it is uh and and they'll figure it out a way to sue or something about that right so so anytime there's a there's a risk of creating investor loss with your product um be aware right because that that if even sort of regulatory regulators aside investor loss triggers lawsuits 
and and trust me, plaintiffs' attorneys are incredibly creative, um, somewhat to their credit, frankly, and and they will find someone to sue, right? Um, I, I they you know they will find they will find a responsible party to sue at the end of the if there are losses there, um, and and I'm not sure that that's is wrong, right? I mean, there there's I think a lot of cases in crypto where the sort of quote unquote technical decentralization gets held up as basically a facade or a defense against malfeasance behavior. Um, but regardless of whether you're well-intentioned or not, if someone can lose money using your system, someone will try to sue you over it down the road eventually. So you're well off talking to an attorney, even if it's to deal with the civil issues, right? That the, the, the civil um, lawsuits setting aside the regulators. Uh, you know, other big red flags, I, I think those are really, to me, the big two, right? Are you can taking in and other people's money that can be lost, or are you taking fees off of other um, and And you'll notice that there's this sort of consistent theme of other people's money, doing things with other people's money. Let me give you some, some exemplar counterpoints. Uh, the FinCEN has given us really helpful guidance, uh, probably the most guidance of almost any regulatory authority on, on crypto. And one place where there's a clear dividing line, right, is um, wallets, right? So a private wallet, right? Well, any private wallet that that is non-custodial is clearly on, you know, those developers are not regulated. We know for sure that if you could put out a, a, a private wallet uh, application, you, that's not a problem. If you ever hold on to or have access to the money wallets, Right. In any way, then you're regulated and, you know, someone's you're going to get caught somewhere. And I think this is, this is similar. Right. If you just create a smart contract or, or a cool system that people can then use to do things, that tends to be less of a concern, although all things being equal, they can be. If you are creating something where really the the you know, you're pooling money or you're taking fees off of other people's money or, or whatever you've created, right, is, is not just a tool for me to exercise control over my money, but it, that tool itself is exercising control over my money, um, then you've got potentially more of a problem. Uh, and, and, and you probably need to talk to it very sooner rather than later. I know those, that dichotomy is, is rather inchoate, but unfortunately, the really broad nature of DeFi makes it tough yeah, to uh, to sure. bring it closer than that. Well, well, my last question for you would be that, you know, since kind of leaning back to what I was saying earlier, that, you know, the tools have gotten to a certain level of sophistication. So that being said, what, what regulatory nuclear bombs could state bodies still drop that could just like ruin the whole party? Because it seems at this point, you've got institutions, you've got people holding Bitcoin on their balance sheets at this point, right? There's a lot of downside risk I, to- I don't, they, like, I don't think they want to. I, I, I don't think the regulators want to stop the party, right? I mean, in other words, they don't, regulators have rules they have to enforce and they have certain, and those rules are born of certain systemic basic concerns that are never going to go away, right? Um, people not paying their taxes or laundering money, uh, people defrauding investors, massive instability in essential commodity markets. These things are always going to be of regulatory concern. Um, I, 
as long as those are met, right, I, I don't think that there's any great desire, at least on the part of U.S. regulators, to, to shut down DeFi or crypto or anything else. And and I will I'm going to quote a former member of, of Lab CFTC here, um, it escapes me right now, unfortunately, uh, who said that you know the, the the U.S. regulators can envision a world in which rather than regulating market participants or market nodes, right, as we're talking about, they they regulate market activity, right? Because on-chain activity is, is highly visible. And, and although not all of the rules that are surround financial regulation are about getting information sort of compiled in the hands of regulators, a lot of it is, and a lot of the most onerous components are. Um, so I think the, it's actually quite the opposite. I think you could imagine a world in which regulators say, okay, um, if legislatures are willing to play ball, we would like to explore reframing how we regulate markets to, to looking directly at the market activity itself on chain, you know, in real time. Um, they would need to have certain things built into those systems, right, to, to, to function from those, to deal with those policy issues that I mentioned earlier. But I actually could see a world in which regulators are quite, quite open, and I think they are quite open to to further developments in this in this space. But I do think that there are some core systemic concerns that they have that that will have to be met because they're they're just never going to go away. And and I, although look, I was a cyberpunk in my in my youth, and and I still. Uh, my favorite novel is still Diamond Age, but I do think we're still quite a ways away from the sort of breakdown into a digital stateless system that that is sometimes efficient. Well, that being said, I mean, obviously you have like deep levels of knowledge here that are both like relevant with like your work and your, you know, your different clients that you have now. If someone who was listening in wanted to get a piece of that expertise or wanted to reach out to you, um, how can they uh, get in touch with your firm and yourself? Yeah, so you can reach us. If Go to um, LLOYlaw.com or you can email me at alexander at LLOYLAW.com. Um, I'm always happy to field questions and, and give, don't generally charge for consults. So if you got questions in the space or you want to talk to somebody about a product, I'm all ears and I'm always eager to hear more about uh, more of the stuff that's done in the field. You heard him, guys. So if you need to hit up anyone for crypto lawyer related stuff, uh, message Alex, <laughs> tell him Mackie sent you. He'll give me a discount. <laughs> so I, I put it on my affiliate, you know, add it to my affiliate code. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so thanks for coming on, Alex. It's nice to get um, this feedback from you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and dig into your network and get someone to come on here to talk to us about the tax accountancy here. Um, or, or maybe I'll have like the token tax guys on here, but I think it would be good to get some good subject matter, like kind of understanding on what these different activities could mean and what the tax yeah. implications are, which and I'm sure you know. Especially on the investor, well, on the investor side, and I will say, because we both mostly talking about the, the sort of developer side today, um, on the, there's been a lot of activity on the fund side, people piling into the space. Uh, regulatorily, I, I, pretty straightforward stuff, to be perfectly honest. Uh, all things considered, you know, most fund attorneys could probably help you, although, some expertise is good and certainly come to me if you need help. That said, um, the tax bookkeeping and accounting issues for fund managers into yield farming are non-trivial and, and they should oh, be aware of them and, and look into them more before they, they dive in. 
Yeah, man. I got. We'll get one of those tax nerd guys on here. They just love yeah, that stuff. That, that, <laughs> that's a whole other can of worms, man. I, I'll leave it to them. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks, thanks for coming on and sharing your expertise, Alex. Um, please come back on in the future. Uh, another like maybe like twelve, like eighteen months once DeFi has matured, and maybe it's the mainstay at that point. Who knows? Um, I, but I look yeah. forward to hopefully reporting on on great regulatory developments then. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, man. And so, so yeah, again, so thank you so much. And um, we'll have you back on the show in the future and uh, get out there and, you know, save some people's lives. <laughs> I'll try my best. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It was wonderful. Hey, guys, I'll make this real quick. Just want to make sure you check out the link to the sponsor in the show notes, Van Moof. That's spelled V-A-N-M, as in Martin, O-O-F dot com. Uh, and they are an e-bike company out of Berlin, Germany. And they are um, providing us a bike uh, for us to test and use here uh, at Block Channel. And I've been a huge fan of their premium bike. And I think e-mobility is going to be a large sector growing and going forward as the world becomes you know, more decentralized, more mobile, more distributed. Uh, you know, Medium range, like extended vehicles and things of that nature are definitely going to grow uh, in, def in different forms and factors. Uh, so huge fan of AMU here at Block Channel and want to make sure you guys check that out. Never been alone with a man before. I don't seem to mind. Do you? Go out for a cup of coffee.